you have an opportunity to stand up and say, I want to be a part of fixing this. And that's what I learned. I learned they'll tell you you're crazy over and over again until it happens, and then they'll say you're a genius. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's episode has two parts and one theme. Conceptually, I want you thinking about the difference one person can make. We're about to enter probably one of the toughest years in our country's history, a year that could quite honestly end the American experiment and send us down a path of darkness and fear. But America has been through crises before, and the question is, what are you going to do to fight for what's right in a time when so much is wrong? To talk about this, I've asked my friend David Bender to come and join us because he is someone who time and again has stood up and fought for what was right in this country, and he is fired up to do it again. David is a Democratic strategist, an author, producer, and former talk radio host. He spent five decades as a political activist, beginning when he took what he calls a leave of absence from seventh grade to become a full-time volunteer for Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. David went on to report on the presidential campaigns of Richard Nixon, George McGovern, and Herbert Humphrey. He was a key aide to the legendary liberal activist Allard Lowenstein, pivotal in both the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement. David served on the national field staff for California Governor Jerry Brown's 76 presidential campaign and Senator Edward Kennedy's 1980 presidential campaign. When JFK Jr. launched his political and cultural magazine, George, David was his first West Coast contributing editor. David was also the host of the Air America show Politically Direct, where he regularly interviewed influential voices in politics and media like Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and Gore Vidal. Dubbed Rachel Maddow's political guru, David joined her show as a contributor in 2008 and frequently guest hosted when she was away. He also has an extensive film and television writing career, but he would tell me this introduction is already too long, so I will leave it to you to look that up for yourself. I'm having him on today to get his insight in where we are as a country and then to talk to him about where he is as a human living in this country. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, political expert, author, and guy who seems to know everyone and everything in politics, David Bender. Welcome back, David. I know everyone except certain people who wear red hats. I know <laughs> none of them. They're, they're, they're not friends of mine, and only if they're Cardinal fans do I know them. Got it. Got it. Well, thanks for joining me. I mean, what a time we're living thanks through, right? Me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're living we're living through it, which is the most important thing. We have to survive it in order to change it. And there have been times in our history where we thought we couldn't, and we did. And this is yet another one. It's a hard one. Yeah. But that's the one experience I've had in a in a long time in this process is that when it seems it, Reagan seemed impossible, Nixon seemed impossible. Uh, we got through it. What yeah. George W. Bush? Remember him? I do. Seemed impossible, but we, we got through it. That's what got me to be an American citizen. I thought I cannot do this one, one more time and not have voted in this election. Well, we are grateful for you for Thank that. You. And 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 that's that's the thing. I I do know that it is the idea that people feel helpless that makes it true. And the one lesson I've had my whole life is that when people tell you you can't change something it is not a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is only something you buy into. And I never have. And I don't. You never have. I think I'm the same way. I mean, I think you and I are both at the same way with the way the country is right now. We know it's at a crossroads. We know the stakes couldn't be higher. And you and I are just doing our best to get people to understand how serious this moment really is. Well, you know, what? what's interesting about it, and again, so many times it comes down to one person I was thinking back, uh, we're now watching the Supreme Court get involved as early as tomorrow when Trump has to respond to a, 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 Jack Smith went directly to the court. That had happened last pretty much with Leon Jaworski with the tapes. The Nixon tapes. And Leon Jaworski, a special prosecutor, said, uh, we do not have to go through all these steps. The court is able to skip the appellates and make a decision. And they did in eight days. And this is what Trump was expecting would not happen. His delay, delay, delay has always worked for him. And Jack Smith is not playing the game. 
and good on him. And that's that's what I hope gives a lot of people cause for at least belief. And the one thing I'll say, uh, Lee, is that if we, uh, the courts don't operate in a vacuum. If we make it clear that, that we're watching, they are a political entity. We do know that. And if we make it clear that we are paying attention it helps. It, it's it's not like you can lobby the court, but you can make it very clear. And a lot of citizen activists, individuals in their own communities, uh, letters to editors, you, any one person can be a part of this bigger process. Yeah. We had Delia Lithwick on the show a couple of months ago, and she was like, these people She's do great. respond to political persuasion. They do respond to people being outraged. They do respond to people paying attention to them. And I do think it's really important that we keep our eye on the ball here. And I've said that from the beginning, you know, not getting involved in politics, not paying attention to the courts. It doesn't mean that their decisions don't affect you. It means you can't affect them. And so we not, we need to be doing it. Now, you personally exactly. have lived through a ton of political turmoil. You were mentioning Nixon earlier. You, you lived through the 60s. Um, but I want to talk just for one second because you worked on the Bobby Kennedy campaign. You were actually in the, the hotel. The, the, the good Bobby The good Bobby Kennedy. Kennedy. Well, this is what the, I want to talk to you one. about. Like, you yeah. were there. You were there when he was so tragically shot. You know, you worked for Ted Kennedy. You worked for JFK Gen Kennedy Jr. What do you think the Kennedys would think about RFK Jr. acting as a spoiler candidate at the very time we need democratic unity? This is a very personal Thing for I me. know I, you I've know known, this family. I, I, I know him. Uh, he and I started working together in 1980 when his uncle ran for president. Uh, I met him. We were both in our 20s, um, uh, which doesn't work if you do the math. And I'm still 39. <laughs> but it, it, we were we were young. We worked for one of the most progressive champions this country has ever seen, Edward Kennedy probably the most effective senator in the last hundred years in terms of liberal legislation. And Bobby, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., for most of our long friendship, has been a champion for things that we care about, a champion for the environment, a champion against uh, polluters. He has done some of the most extraordinary work. At some point in recent years, something happened. I can't tell you I'm not a I'm not a doctor but I will quote Dr. Fauci who said he seems disturbed and I think that's not an unfair assessment. I I don't know what has happened because he's not a stupid man at all. He's very well read, he's very knowledgeable. But he believes that he's on a mission. He has become a zealot and there is no other way of describing what has happened. This is it, many members of his own family, including at least four of his siblings, say the same thing. We love our brother, but we could not disagree with him more strongly and hate what he is doing. And that's how, personally, that's my answer. Yeah. I still love him. I don't think he is uh, in a place where you can reach him. Uh, he believes he is on a mission not dissimilar to the mission that Mike Johnson thinks he's on, a mission directly from God. Yeah. Uh, and if you feel you are a savior, Donald Trump has never felt that. Donald Trump has never had a conversation with God unless he's looking in the mirror. Uh, but Bobby's a deeply religious person, Mike Johnson, deeply religious. They believe this. They believe that God is talking to them and they are the vehicle for God. And in a country that was very specifically not based on that idea, uh, we have a problem. So the specific answer is that. I love Bobby. I hate what he's doing. Uh, the broader answer is that we are in a very volatile situation. I remind people, and you and I have talked about this, it, it is December of the year before the election. So we're 11 months out, a little less than that. At this point, eight years ago, Donald Trump had not yet participated in even the Iowa caucuses. He was still being written off as a joke. Eight years ago, right now, no one saw what was coming, uh, including him. So for people to say Bobby is a spoiler or that there are other people who could get in, there's talk of a Mark Cuban candidacy, a Joe Manchin candidacy, any of that, that's all talk right now. Bobby's polling right today, and today polls don't 
mean anything, but you can follow trends at 8%. Where's that coming from? A lot of people think it's coming out of Trump voters. But I would say to you that as someone who has worked with his family and all of their good works, starting with Bobby's father, Ted Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy Jr., we worked together at George Magazine. I think their ethos is trying to make this country a better place. I believe that Bobby is deeply misguided in doing what he's doing and dangerous in doing what he's doing. And I've said that to him. Yeah. Well, I think you used the right word, zealot. I think when people are making decisions, like you said, where they think they're acting on behalf of God, then anything is acceptable. Anything is allowed. Anything is enough because you are the vehicle for a higher being. And I think anyone that lives in that kind of zealotry land is dangerous to us. And this idea of eight years ago that we didn't see what was coming, we couldn't see what was coming. I mean, seriously and for real, how do you now see, eight years later, how do you now see this moment in American history? Where are we? Having lived through so many political movements in this country, where are we now? Well, there, there, there are a couple of ways of, of me from my own life experience of looking at it. I, I was very young working in Robert Kennedy's campaign. I was 12 years old. I <laughs> dropped out of seventh grade. Please don't tell anyone. Uh, illegal. Uh, but I, I worked on that campaign and learned about, you know, the, the issue that drove his candidacy, which was opposition to the war in Vietnam. And I had someone who would, I didn't know him then, but who would later become my mentor who had organized, uh, his name was Allard Lowenstein. He became a congressman, the anti Johnson movement. And everyone said it was crazy. You can't take on a sitting president. It's impossible politically. And they, they called him crazy. He worked for a year in 67. He got Eugene McCarthy to challenge Johnson. And then ultimately, Robert Kennedy got in. And then a month later, less than that, two weeks later, Lyndon Johnson said he wouldn't run again. Between the time that, that started in the beginning of 67 to the end of 68, public opinion on the war in Vietnam had done a 180. It had gone from two-thirds of the country supporting our involvement in Vietnam to two-thirds opposing it. And Nixon only got elected because he said he had a secret plan to end the war, and the secret was so secret he didn't know it. What I learned from that was that people like Al Lowenstein and then individuals who make a choice to get involved and, and individuals in larger and larger numbers as they were in the anti-war marches become a collective. And that's our power. People power becomes something that I... I learned at an early age that you can do it individually and then join up with others. Now, I saw this exact thing repeat when I worked with Howard Dean in 2003. I joined Howard Dean's campaign when he was uh, at a half a percent. And the only reason I was supporting him is he was opposed to our involvement in Iraq. He was the only Democratic candidate. Uh, Two-thirds of the country at the beginning of 2003 supported American involvement in Iraq. Howard Dean didn't win the presidency, but his candidacy got every other Democrat to turn around. And by the end of uh, almost an exact parallel to what happened in 67, 68, two-thirds of the country were opposed to U.S. involvement in Iraq, including every Democratic candidate. That makes a difference. And one man, Howard Dean, uh, you know, in the case of Al Lowenstein getting Gene McCarthy and by extension Robert Kennedy to run, if you believe strongly enough that something is wrong, you have an opportunity to stand up and say, I want to be a part of fixing this. And that's what I learned. I learned it is, it, they'll, they'll tell you you're crazy over and over again until it happens and then they'll say you're a genius. Yeah. Can I ask you something, not to get off topic, but then how is that different than what the far left kids are doing with the Gaza situation, where they think they're doing the right thing and they think they are helping the Palestinians uh, when really they unfortunately are helping Russia, Iran, Hamas, 
in many ways, the Netanyahu government. How does that help? Because these are these are our our world events that changed on someone changing the sitting president's mind or the the prevailing mind. And um, how is that different than what we're looking at now when I really do think that we've gone down the wrong path with that? Well, I agree with you. And I think that it's like saying there are always, and particularly in the age we live in now, in this century with social media, where you can gather people together in larger numbers more quickly around bad ideas. There are now uh, globally a million people who are members of the Flat Earth Society. Now, there may have been a million people who believe that the Earth was flat, but they didn't know each other until the internet. Yeah. So what I see on college campuses is is different, um, but yet, again, there are Christian students who are organizing deeply around their Christian message and the message they're getting, as we talked about earlier, one that seems to be coming directly from God, or they are told as young people it is coming directly from God. You know, just because you believe something deeply, it doesn't make it right. And the reason we have a republic, not a democracy, is because we count on our leaders to filter out messages. People can say, this is what we believe in large numbers. And I do not believe that those students represent a majority of American opinion. I don't. I believe that they believe this is true. I do. And and I believe they believe they're doing it in the spirit of, of goodwill and taking care of people yeah. and humanitarianism. Right. And I really do believe that they think they're doing the right thing. Um, Absolutely. But that doesn't make Absolutely. Joe Biden a genocidal maniac. And no. uh, that's where I think we've lost our, our way. And and because Joe Biden is not, and and I have to say, never has there been an opportunity to more closely understand how good a president we have right now in Joe Biden than watching Tony Blinken and watching Jake Sherman and uh, uh, Lloyd Austin, the people who are dealing with this problem in real time, particularly Blinken. Uh, And the notion that uh, he is a puppet to Netanyahu, quite the opposite. He's bringing the appropriate quiet pressure to bear to keep Netanyahu from going further in the direction of what might not call genocide, but certainly uh, the complete and utter destruction of civilians disproportionate to what happened. Now, there's an interesting, uh, you know Sam Harris, right? Sam Harris, he's he's brilliant. I hope you have him on on this program. He's absolutely extraordinary. He uh, is probably the country's leading atheist, but he is a deep thinker about religion and its impact. And he draws a distinction between Islam and jihadism. Jihadism is something like Nazism. It it is inhumane to its core. Jihadists will kill other Muslims. They will kill children because they believe they are getting them to heaven. So the, the brutality we saw from the jihadists against Israel is a separate question from the idea of Palestinians. Jihadists are a danger to anyone and everyone, including their own people. And that's a distinction that Sam Harris made recently, and I listened to and I thought, well, this is right. The people we have to oppose, and we have to, by in every opportunity, we have to try and eliminate the idea of jihadism. Uh, We've seen how dangerous it is, you know, fatwas against uh, writers and cartoonists. Uh, it's just, it, it is not something that can peacefully coexist on a planet, even that allows for religious differences. This is beyond that. Yeah. Death is their culture. So we can't have that. And, and I anything that Biden and anyone else is doing to defeat, including Netanyahu, I loathe, by the way, but Anything that they're doing to defeat the jihadists, I am for. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what you were saying about social media and how in some ways we have to defer to the experts in these kind of situations instead of thinking we know everything because we heard it in a meme or on TV or that kind of thing. But I want to go back to where we are right now because Mm -hmm. the extremism that we're seeing in the Middle East 
is also extremism that's rising here at home. And I know that when Trump was elected, you felt like, how can everything I've done my whole life be unraveled by 70,000 people in three states? You know, all of that progress, civil rights, women's rights, workers' rights, gays' rights. You remember me saying that. I said that exactly that. Yeah. I do. I do remember you saying that because it, it struck me because you have been in politics for so long and you watched this man come to power who had no business being in power. And it, it, because of our system, because we are a republic, because we have the electoral college, it really did come down to such a small amount of people in, in a couple of states. Less than a football field. Yeah. And that's exactly what's going to happen next year, too. It's going to come down to a small amount of people in a small amount of states. And what we're looking Probably. at now is the unraveling and on the chopping block of all the progress that we've made throughout the years. And I keep saying the Republican Party wants to shove us all into a time machine against our will and take us back to when things were great for them. And, and when I say them, I mean straight, white, rich Christian men. And I tell you, if you're voting for Republicans and that's not you, then you're voting against your own freedom. Because even me as a white woman, our, my proximity to power is not going to save me. If we look at Texas, they're going to let us die before they give up control over us. We mean nothing to them. So we are at the vermin, uh, round them up into camp stage, right? Like that's literally where we are. And Trump said he's going to be a dictator for one day. But I mean, show me a dictator that's ever uh, given back power. So this is incredibly serious. This party has written it all down in Project 2025. They keep saying the quiet part out loud. Maybe we should get rid of contraception. Maybe we should be able to marry children. Maybe we should have one religion. Maybe we should close the border. Maybe gay people should be criminalized and black people should just comply. They are already banning books and punishing private companies for not towing the line. They just had Victor Orban hosting him the same day that President Zelensky was asking for funding in Ukraine. Viktor Orban was saying, don't give them money. Authoritarianism is on rise all around the world. And we need to get really serious that it's also on the rise here in America. Well, let's, can I fill the glass halfway? Uh, sure. And say, and say that we just saw that change in Poland where uh, surprisingly- true. The uh, was it faith and the justice, far right was defeated. Party, yeah, was defeated and by the moderates. The key issue, the key issue, was abortion. It had the largest crowds in the history, including in, for the fall of communism, in the streets, and it was women. And what they have not figured out, and they they will not figure it out. They're they're actually making it worse is that what they have done is they have created a situation where the turnout, in my view, and again, it's a fool's errand to predict what will happen in 11 months, but they're not changing here. They're doubling down and tripling down on a woman's right to choose and women's health, period. This was a woman in Texas who, whose life was threatened, had to go to another state. That, that Those examples become visceral examples. We have seen every single election uh, in red states, blue states, purple states, turn on this by numbers that no one predicted. So I think two things are going to happen, Lee. I think, and I really believe this, that in 2000, Al Gore didn't carry Tennessee, which is why Florida decided the election. He didn't carry Tennessee, his home state, because he was not sufficiently uh, pro-gun. Uh, and he was a senator from Tennessee, and he could, had he carried that state, he'd have been president, and God knows we'd have had a different history on the environment for a, a decade. Well, guns are no longer the, the third rail. Women particularly now, along with choice and, and the court's decision there, women are saying, we've had enough. There's too much mass shooting. And mothers, I think, are going to really, they'll have some influence on fathers, but I, I do believe we're going to see turnout that will be much higher in every state. And the consensus of dichotomy about red and blue and what's the six or seven purple states that are the swing states, that could go out the window. Because those numbers are big enough, Wisconsin, 11% on the Supreme Court race, those numbers are big enough to make states that are right now red states into purple states. I, I think we see Ohio in play. I think we see a lot of states. Had they not done exactly what they said they were going to do. And by the way, Trump will be on the ballot for the first time since Dobbs. And it's his court. 
Those are those are his three justices who made that possible. I, I would love to see that campaign because he cannot defend it. He's trying to figure out a way to distance himself. It won't work. Can't work. So I, I do have hope. I, I see Poland. I see what happened there. I think that, well, I'm not saying this, it, it's, a, it's a given, but I, th- I, I do think women, uh, and I'm not saying this because you're a woman, but I will tell you this, women are going to have to solve the problem that men have made. Uh, and and it, is, it isn't quite that simple, but it is ultimately going to be women who say we've had enough of, uh, and, and it, it is true in other countries where women have been leaders, and that's so many other Western countries now, we've seen a different kind of governance. Not always. There's a Margaret Thatcher in every bunch, but I, 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 I think that's the future. I hope that is part of what gives everyone hope, and particularly I'm talking to you women uh, of every age. You are a majority of the electorate. You need to be a bigger majority of the electorate. And few points, uh, and suddenly we're looking at maps that no one, no political expert will recognize. I hope you're right. I think one of the best things about you is that you're not only a guy who's filled with hope, you're a guy that's always been filled with action. I mean, I remember when we first met, we were talking about just after the Trump election, you were upset uh, and you knew things had gone wrong and you knew things that the Russian interference had happened and you knew that once Trump got into office, all that Russia evidence was going to disappear. And you were adamant that we needed to be talking about that before he got power. And will you just tell me what you did when you knew that that had to happen? Did you know that traditional bed sheets can hold on to more bacteria than a toilet seat? Well, now you do. And that's really gross. And those kind of germs on your bedding can lead to things like acne and allergies and stuffy noses, which is why I'm so pleased to tell you that Miracle Made offers a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding like sheets and pillowcases and comforters that prevent up to 99% of bacteria and require three times less laundry. Looking for a good gift this holiday season? You might have found it. Miracle Made sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Miracle sheets are also incredibly comfortable and luxurious without the high price tag of other luxury brands. But see for yourself. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to try it today or gift it to someone this holiday season. And right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Save over 40% by using the promo code politicsgirl at checkout, and you will also get three free towels and save an extra 20%. That's a heck of a deal. And Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you will get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep today with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your three free towels and save over 40%. Again, that is trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to treat yourself, a friend, or a loved one this holiday season. It's a Christmas miracle. If you're like me, morning coffee is non-negotiable, but buying one every day can get really expensive and the whole process of making it at home can be quite time consuming. And don't get me started on those terrible cups of coffee you get in hotels or business centers, which is why I'm really excited to introduce you to one of our newest sponsors, AeroPress. AeroPress is like a French press. It uses patented three-in-one brew technology that combines the best of several brew methods into one portable device that gives you a smooth, rich, full-bodied coffee without the bitterness and grit you get from other presses. Plus, AeroPress brews and cleans in less than two minutes. You just add medium-fine coffee grounds, pour in hot water, stir for five seconds, brew for 30 seconds, and press into a mug to drink. AeroPress can also brew thousands of recipes, which is probably why it's the favorite home brewing tool of baristas and the best reviewed coffee press in the world with more than 55,000 five-star reviews. That kind of positive feedback speaks volumes and makes it the perfect holiday gift or stocking stuffer for any coffee lover in your life. As an added bonus, AeroPress is also really affordable, less than $50. And right now we've got an incredible offer for our audience when they visit aeropress.com slash politicsgirl. That's A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash politicsgirl and you will save up to 20% off that already low price. 
aeropress.com slash politics girl to save up to 20%, ditch the drive through toss the French press, and say yes to better mornings fueled by better coffee. Aeropress ships to the US and over 60 countries around the world, so it can literally be a present for anyone. Thank you, Aeropress, for sponsoring this show. The holidays are busy. Maybe there's extra people in your house, or you're in somebody else's house. No matter where you're laying your head, your days are crazy and there never seems to be quite enough time. What you need right now is rest. We all know sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health that affects our performance throughout the day. If we're not getting enough sleep or the quality is off, so is our life. And when there's this much to do, that's not an option. If we want to feel good, then a consistent nighttime routine that offers us real rest is non-negotiable which is why I'm so pleased to be talking about Beam Dream. Beam Dream is a science-backed, healthy hot cocoa for sleep. While other sleep aids can cause next day grogginess and no one has time for that, Beam contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. The numbers don't lie. In a clinical study, 93% of participants reported Dream helped them get a better sleep. You just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, froth, and enjoy before bed. I can personally tell you that it works. My husband went through a period where he was really struggling to get a good night's sleep, and Beam Dream helped him not only drift off, but stay asleep. We were really grateful, and our lives were infinitely better because of it. Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam Dream Powder, their best-selling hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like chocolate peanut butter, cinnamon cocoa, and sea salt caramel with only 15 calories and zero grams of sugar. Find out why Forbes and the New York Times are talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shop beam.com slash politics girl and use the code politics girl at checkout that's shop b-e-a-m.com slash politics girl for up to 40% off beam dream better sleep has never tasted better so we've been talking a lot about how busy we are during the holiday season and all that's asked of us and i'll say when you're stretched thin the thing you often do is forget to eat which means when you find yourself hungry, you just reach for whatever's convenient and that doesn't always feed your body or your mind. Which is why I'm pleased to be telling you about Mosh Protein Bars. Mosh is a protein bar made for your brain. It supports brain health with ingredients like lion's mane and collagen and omega-3s, but it also has 12 grams of protein, only 160 calories, and one gram of sugar. So if you're constantly on the go like me, you really might want to try these. Mosh Protein Bars are a guilt-free snack that both your brain and your body will crave. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I never much like protein bars. It's the texture for me, but I don't find that with Mosh. I'm personally a big fan of the lemon and white chocolate bar. The flavor is delicious and the texture isn't that weird protein bar texture that leaves that film on your tongue. Plus, since we're talking about the season of giving, Mosh bars are a product with a purpose. Founded by Patrick Schwarzenegger and his mother, Maria Shriver, Mosh is a mission-driven brain health and wellness company that donates a portion of all proceeds to support women's brain research through the Women's Alzheimer Movement at Cleveland Clinic. So don't settle for a mediocre snack when you can nourish your body and your mind with the fuel it needs to succeed. So whether you're at the gym or on the go or just living your best life, Mosh protein bars will keep your brain and body fit, fueled, and feeling good. Head to moshlife.com slash politicsgirl to save 20% off plus free shipping on your first six-count trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on your first six-count trial pack, which includes all of their delicious flavors. That's M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash politicsgirl. Happy holidays. And thank you, Mosh, for sponsoring this show. Will you just tell me what you did when you knew that that had to happen? Sure. And I, I've got to say, uh, uh, the word catatonic comes to mind uh, after uh, Trump's election. I had three days of uh, literally not leaving my house. But I did watch Rachel Maddow. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very blessed. I've, I've had an extraordinary mentor in my life in, in Al Lowenstein, who was himself mentored by Eleanor Roosevelt. So I'm, I'm one mentor away from Eleanor Roosevelt. And that's, that's not bad. Uh, if put that on my, my uh, headstone, um, if ashes get headstones. But I also was very lucky early on at Air America Radio back in uh, 2004 and five that first the, the Kerry Bush election to work with Rachel when she just started in broadcasting. Uh, 
And Rachel ha would have me on. She did not know electoral politics, and that had been my life. Um, now she knows more about them than, than you know, M Michael Beschloss. But she then called me her political guru. So I, to some small, and I'm enormously grateful at the opportunity, I was able to give her some early guidance. Well, as is often the case, the student becomes the teacher. And in 2016, I learned from her. I listened to her carefully. She did an hour about all of the indicators of Russian influence, which we now know to be true regardless of what the Republicans will try and you know distract and say was never proven. It was proven. Uh, that said, what do you do about it? You have a president-elect who almost certainly was empowered and was about to make Michael Flynn his national security director. And so I, I listened to Rachel that Russia was the key. We had two months, a uh, little over that, before the inauguration, and something had to be done. So I called another old friend, David Korn the, uh, of Mother Jones, and uh, he had been covering the Russia story for a long time. And I asked David, what do we do? Uh, something has to happen. And he said, the only way this works, the Obama administration cannot do anything. And, and Lee, I know you pointed this out. He might have done something as early as September and called out the Russian involvement. But Mitch McConnell said, if you do that, we will blame it all on Hillary. And they were they were betting that Hillary was going to win no matter what. I think they also bet. didn't want to have their thumb on the scale to look like they were trying to help Hillary, even though... What was happening with Russia and Trump was well obvious to the people in, in foreign right. intelligence. They didn't want to look like she was going to, they had tried to help her win and they thought she was going to win anyway. And unfortunately, I, I believe that was a mistake. They should have mentioned it earlier, but there's nothing, Absolutely you can't go back in you. time. You can't unring a bell, but, but uh, you know, the, the, the way McConnell would have played it is he is putting his thumb on the scale. Right, exactly. And that, the, and that could have hurt Hillary. So it, now we're in November 2016. Obama still can't do anything really because, it, it, you know, it's the same kind of problem. What do you do if you're prepared to go with history and a peaceful transition? Do you call out your theoretical successor as, in effect, a, a Russian uh, sympathizer? Let's call it that. Let's not even accuse him of of actual collusion there's no need it's it's evident that he would have been very favorable to russia what we do know is that we had a lot of information that they were sitting on and david corn said the only thing that will protect that information is public hearings so i sat in my room uh living room alone except my dogs and I said, dogs, what do we do? And I, I thought about it. And because I knew the politics of it, I knew that we had a couple of options and they were very slim. The house was run by Paul Ryan. Remember him? Uh, and Board member of house, Fox News, Paul Ryan? That Paul Ryan, exactly. Mm -hmm. Former Romney vice presidential candidate, Paul Ryan. But someone who was never going to allow a House committee hearing and the speaker is powerful enough that uh, he or she can tell a committee chair what they can do. Senate is more like individual fiefdoms. So I thought, all right, well, we have, even though McConnell's running the Senate, we have individual senators who chair committees. The possible committees, and literally I'm doing this in my head, uh, the possible committees are foreign affairs. That was chaired by a man who wanted to be Trump's secretary of state. He wasn't going to so do no. it. So no. No. Uh, intelligence was Richard Burr. Uh, but the problem with that was exactly what David Korn said uh, needed to happen. They would have done it in closed session. This, these had to be public hearings for the Obama administration to see that there was significant concern about the attack from Russia on our elections. So I sat there and I thought, well, what does that leave? We're, 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 we've closed all the doors. And then it hit me. I had worked with John McCain and Russ Feingold, and I, and I know you met Senator Feingold, who's still doing great work on the Constitution, um, in 2000 on campaign finance reform. They did bipartisan work to try and change the laws about money and politics. So I had helped them. And I knew McCain some. 
uh, not close, but I knew his people. McCain chaired the Defense Committee, and it occurred to me that we were attacked. This was an attack. It was a cyber attack. It was an attack nonetheless, and therefore defense should have had purview. And then it occurred to me, wait a minute, John McCain, he's afraid of nothing. He hates Russia, and he really hates Donald Trump. So I began a process on December, November 10th, three days after the election, of reaching out to everyone I knew who could get to John McCain. And I went to Washington a number of times. Uh, I met with people in the House, the Senate, met with press people. And honestly, Lee, I felt like I was pushing a boulder uphill that wasn't going to make it. Uh, by a month later, the middle of December, no hearings. We were little over a month away from Trump getting that information and dropping it in the Potomac, because that's what Mike Flynn would have done on day one. 100%. Well, I got off a plane coming back from Washington, really kind of despondent uh, that all this effort had led to nothing. And I opened up my phone and there was, of all people, Lindsey Graham, who was then John McCain's close friend and a member of the Defense Committee saying that Chairman McCain has just announced he's holding hearings on Russia. Public hearings. And at public hearings. And, and the minute those hearings were announced, the Obama administration moved into high gear. I've talked to people about it. And you can, you can read some of the accounts. They worked until 1159 before Trump took the oath to secure that information. Much of that information is what informed the January 6th committee. And we wouldn't have had it. And so I, as an individual, I can't say I was the only one doing this, but I know that I dropped the pebble in the pond. And there were ripples of hope that could come out of that if you if you keep doing it. And that's what I did. I just didn't give up. No, you did do that. You, you did do that. And I'm going to give you the credit for that because you knew we needed a hearing, a public hearing to get it all out in the open and you made that happen. And this is really why I wanted you on the show. First, because... We've become dear friends over the years, and I truly love you. And your insight and your info into the American history is contagious. You, you have a passion for this country that I also share. But also because you're the perfect person to illustrate what you were saying before, how one person can make a difference, that when we see things are wrong, we can't just sit back and allow them to continue, that it's incumbent on us to do something about it. You've been doing this your whole life. I know you've been talking about your mentors who taught you to stand up for what's right even when it wasn't popular. You were in there fighting for gay rights before it was even a thing to be fighting for, right? Before I even could say it myself. Yeah, you were there doing the work. And I'm sure you're looking around right now going like, oh my God, all of this progress that I made over the years could be turned back by this small band of bigoted backward zealots, you know? Like, this is... They're already on their way to doing it. And, 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 and I have to tell you, I, where I entered this picture was in the 70s. I met Harvey Milk uh, when he was... He wasn't the first openly gay elected official, but one of the first in the country and certainly the most visible. And I was still closeted. I, I was 21. And he inspired me. I, I was scared to death to go to a speech of his that people might see me attending. And... He died. He was assassinated. Let's call it what it was uh, a year after we met. And what I took away from that was that all of us had to carry on and try and make sure what he said is let, you know, the bullet that kills me shatter every closet door. So I, I began working, doing what I knew how to do, which was politics. I began organizing something that is now called the Human Rights Campaign, and it's one of the largest political action committees in the country. In, in, in those days, Lee, politicians would send money back. Think of that phrase, politician returning money, uh, if it came from a gay donor. And we created something, and I was, I don't know, mid-20s, uh, did the first major dinner uh, for the Human Rights Campaign at the Waldorf, uh, got national attention. And we launched something, it's still going on 40 years later, uh, and is now completely normalized. It, presidents go, everyone goes, Republicans go, some. Uh, but it was Harvey who 
inspired me, but I also knew from my experience with Al Lowenstein that you can say, I'm going to change this. I'm going to do my part, what I know how to do, use the skill I have. And that was politics. Um, there's a, a, a quick funny aside when I, when we were doing the dinner in New York, the, uh, men who had come together to organize it were bankers and lawyers and, and some of them Republicans, conservative, but they wanted to do it. And they had decided they had put a lease down on a boat that was going to sail outside the three mile limit and have a party ship, uh, and invite politicians on. And I looked at them and I, I was the kid in the room and I said, I'm sorry, you're doing what? The, it, the New York Post headline, Gay Love Boat, <laughs> is is going to drive away everyone you want. And I talked them out of not only doing that, but they got their deposit back. We went to the most mainstream place we could, the Waldorf Astoria. And the rest is, you know, what we've seen. The human rights campaign has become a huge force for changing politics around LGBTQ issues. So... Yeah, I did. I play a part in that. I did, and and it's the part I knew how to play because uh, you use the skills you have, and you bring them to bear. David, I mean, the bottom line is you have been in the fight from the beginning. You've been a passionate warrior for this country since before you could vote. At twelve, you're volunteering on a campaign, and listen. Which is why, if you will indulge me, I would like to shift gears and talk about another important issue that you have recently gotten involved in, not at the expense of your political work, but mostly so you can continue your political work. Will you just tell us a bit about your new passion project? Because I want to talk to my audience about it. I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I life t- gives you a lot of curveballs uh, and... For me right now, one that got thrown at me uh, fairly recently was the knowledge that at some point in the not too distant future, I'm going to need uh, a kidney transplant to keep going. Uh, you know, I had occasion, uh, I worked a lot with artists over the years. And, you know, I worked with David Crosby, who passed in January, close and beloved friend. He got a liver transplant, how I came to know about this and become something of an advocate for it. Uh, in 1994, he lived another 28 years. They told him at the most it would be 14. But science and medical science, and, and I know you know health issues very well, the advancements have allowed for transplantation to become incredibly easy, successful, uh, donors uh, have no health risks, but people need a single kidney. They have two. Uh, Crosby got lucky. You only get one liver, and he got a donor that matched. Now I am working with a program at UCLA. I am about to become eligible for one, and yes, I would welcome uh, having either a match or, or there's a system now, which I just learned about, and I think a lot of people don't know about. A lot of it I learned about watching John Oliver talk about this. I recently. know. John Oliver just did the most amazing um, segment on... on uh, people should look at it. If, yeah. they, if they love John Oliver, they should go back and look at it. It was a couple of weeks ago, but uh, maybe a month ago now. No, let me just tell uh, people, just so they know before you go on, John Oliver just did an entire segment on organ and body donation on HBO. And as John Oliver often does, he drew attention to some of the problems in the system. Uh, one of them is that they've discovered that these things called OPOs, which are not always so well run, which are the local regional organ procurement uh, locations uh, for the national organization, which is called UNESCO, Um, they don't run so well. So we often lose organs that are totally viable and could go into people in transportation or through a computer system or so this kind of thing. And according to Oliver, if, you know, these OPOs ran better, we could save almost 6,000 people a year, which is interesting because we lose about 6,000 people a year who are just waiting for an organ. And so they're just blowing it with bad management. And it was so fascinating because you and I have obviously been talking about organ donation yep. recently. And here is this, you know, mainstream show talking about exactly Out of the, the blue, same thing. Suddenly he yeah. is, and he highlighted stuff I didn't know. And I, I thought I'd studied it all, but this, you program, uh, which was set up in the eighties, 
is is still working with technology from the 80s. Yeah. They're faxing information. So is the IRS. <laughs> this is how like old yeah. government systems work and we need to update them when we need to give them money. And I, I want people to remember what, what David's talking about is that transplants in general, whether you're a living donor or you're deceased, they only became available in David's lifetime. Just so people know, yeah. the first organ transplant in America took place in 1954. Before that, it was basically science fiction. And as time has gone on, transplantation has become more and more common. We think of it as like a normal thing that we do. But it wasn't until 1984 that Congress passed the National Organ Transplant Act, which was the banning of the sale of human organs, which by the way, was not illegal before, and it established the National Registry for Organ Matching, which is called UNOS, or the United Network for Organ Sharing, which is a private, not-for-profit um, that works under a federal contract. And while UNOS is the national organization, there are 56 regional organ procurement organizations that we were saying are called OPOs that operate exclusively in the regions underneath them around the country, uh, getting uh, organs from donors and getting those organs to transplant patients in need. That's exactly right. And again, a lot of this I learned from John Oliver. Uh, when I qualify for the list, which I think will be sometime in January or February, I I now realize I can qualify for any of those 58 lists. That's right. The waiting you can period put your name on multiple in, in, lists. It, it, waiting period in California can be two to five years. And that's that could be a real health threat for me because dialysis is something that is the next step when your kidneys aren't functioning, but it makes you, first of all, it shortens your life. Secondly, it makes it less likely for the transplant to work. So if many people are fortunate enough, and I intend to be one of them, knocking wood, uh, that you can skip dialysis, go to the transplant. And then, you know, like David Crosby, you have uh, he, he, he did not die, uh, of, uh, liver failure 28 years after his transplant. So I, I still, there's a lot I want to do. And, and I, I know that, you know, it's interesting. I, I learned as, as I would any campaign, this is an effort where you have to raise awareness. Uh, and that's what I now have to be a part of. There's a program, uh, UCLA, I'm involved in the core kidney program, and, and they're doing a great job. They're going to have a float in the Rose Parade with donors and recipients and try and draw national attention to it, which I think is great. And I encourage people to you know go to the CORE, core kidney program at UCLA. Um, I think there's a website. But it, it, you know when I worked for the Human Rights Campaign and Gay Rights, obviously, being a gay man, I benefit if there's less discrimination. But I couldn't do it for me. I wasn't doing that for me. I was doing it because it was the right thing to do. I now am aware of a problem I didn't know anything about. Yes, it affects me, but I'm going to feel great if we can do exactly what you just said. If we can get to the place where this system is reformed so thousands and thousands of people can be helped. I'd like to be one of them, but I, I, I would be even happier if it's thousands and thousands of people I never meet, uh, but through the through these efforts. So am I going to dedicate some time to this now? Darn right. I, yeah. I, I need to. So I, and, and, but it's, it's, you know, walking and chewing gum. Uh, so long as I can walk and I don't chew much gum, uh, I, I will keep also focusing on 2024 where, you know, I, nothing would make me happier. If, if the only kidney I will refuse would be Donald Trump's. Uh, I, I just think my body would reject it. Uh, and and I, I won't go any further than that to say uh, that, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing an a, uh, ideological test, but uh, I have but one life to give for my country. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, Donald Trump isn't going to be giving up anything that he doesn't have to, which is why I wanted to That's talk right. about this, right? Like, I couldn't let the season of giving come and go without talking about the importance of giving someone the gift of life. Donald Trump is never going to do that for anyone but himself. You are incredibly important to me. And I know that you're not engaged in this fight because it serves you. you. You've become interested in this topic because you know how important it is to so many people. And like everything in 
your life. You just want to make a difference. And this is the fact that the doctors and scientists are putting a lot of attention these days into living donor programs. You're talking about UCLA's core kidney program. They actually have a float in the Rose Bowl parade this year to draw attention to the gift yep. of life. You know, yep. and 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 if you're someone who is out there and you think like you know what, like, I actually have always thought of that, you know, like, I have always thought about like, what if I did give a kidney to someone in need, you might know, Selena Gomez, she's probably one of the most famous people that has had um, a friend give her a kidney and when she needed one. And much like our medical system has forced us to do GoFundMe for medical bills, our organ donation system is just inefficient enough that it leaves people at the mercy of strangers or even doing things like taking out billboards on Times Square, which they talked about on John Oliver's show, which a man right. did a couple years ago and did a kidney that way. So consider this conversation right now, David's billboard, because I want people to know that this wonderful B positive, and that is his blood type and his attitude, uh, David Bender, he definitely <laughs> needs your help. And so I want this to be a catalyst, right? If you have ever considered the gift of life through donorship, this is a call to action, right? You might not be able to help David, but you could help someone wonderful like him and you can exactly. donate. Yeah. You can donate in someone's name. Um, and that'll move them up the list. If you say I'm donating in David Bender's name, it moves him up the donor list. Even if he can't get your kidney, right? You can donate in general, uh, as a living donor, or you can donate if God forbid anything should happen to you to have your organs be used, help someone after you're gone. So I just want to say, if anyone is interested in and would like more info, you can always email me personally at contact at politicsgirl.com and just put the subject donor and I will make sure it gets to the right place because there are so many worthy people, including my dear friend David, who are waiting for the gift of life. And I wanted to spotlight one person to draw your attention to a bigger issue. So please consider helping if the, if you can. Uh, uh, Lee, uh, first of all, you know how touched I am and, and grateful I am for this, but it also is of a piece. We, we have work to do. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of other people, I mean, Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy had a brain tumor in, in the last year of his life. And if you'll recall, he made it onto the Senate floor to cast a deciding vote on healthcare, uh, the issue of his life. So it, no matter what, you need to give every second you've got because purpose is why we're here. And, and I, I now, you know, I, I'm looking at the core kidney program and, and, and uh, it just, it, I, I know you have contact for you. It's also uclakidneydonor.org, uclakidneydonor.org, where people can go on and there's a simple form to see if you can, uh, can be a donor. But look, I, I hope and expect, because I am not, I am a glass half full kind of guy that this is a hurdle. I'll, I'll make it through, but as important as it is to me, I really not only want to see other people helped, but I want to see us all get to the place where we defend Obamacare, which is, again, Trump has said full out he's going to find a way to undo it. One thing about these people, believe them when they tell you. They told you they were going to overturn Roe. They did. So I want to be a part of that fight in 2024 because... Uh, you know, my health is important, but everyone's health is dependent on us winning this fight. And you asked me how I view this from my perspective. I didn't live through the year that this is analogous to. I lived through 1967 and the anti-war movement, I lived through Watergate. Uh, we all lived through uh, George W. Bush. They all seem very bleak. Abraham Lincoln lived through 1859 and 1860. And that's our moment. This is our calling to the better angels of our nature. And I truly believe we are going to rise to the occasion and save this republic. But we're going to do it uh, with our collective voice and particularly women's voices. See, this is one of the reasons we need you around. We need your light. We need your wisdom. We need your advice. You always say to me, we got a year to save this country and we need to fight with everything we've got. So we need to come together on this. At the end of the day, I want you guys to know that one person really can make a difference. And whether that's David 
insisting on public hearings or starting the human rights campaign or me doing rants in my kitchen, keeping you guys informed, or whether that's you doing what you can to make uh, the world a better place. We can all make our mark. And maybe even that's donating an organ and saving a life. We can always do something, always. And I want people to know that as they go into these holidays and the season of giving. I want to thank you for joining us today, David. You're important, you're loved, you're needed. And let's get you back to peak health as soon as possible because we certainly need you in this fight. Oh, I, I intend to bring every kidney I've got. And and uh, if Kevin McCarthy punches me in the kidney, I will punch him right in the jaw. <laughs> I'll take and on it. on that note. On that note. Goodbye, my friend. I love you and you. I'll see you soon. I love you Mwah. too. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So that was my brilliant friend, David Bender, the man who hasn't rested for one moment in his life and has done everything with the best of us all in mind. He really is the perfect person for a political podcast to talk about the power one person has to make positive change in the world. And if you were to take one thing away from this conversation, aside from being a living donor and saving a life or donating a kidney to David to save his, it's that you too can be a force for change in this world. Your passion, your outrage, your hope, all can be a catalyst for good. You just have to stand up and do the work. I wanna thank David for joining us today and sharing his story and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now drop me a note at contact at politicsgirl.com if you want more information about kidney donation. It really would mean the world to me. Until next week, PGF. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.